Welcome to the Birmingham Vineyard Podcast. We hope you find it insightful and encouraging. If you want to find out more about us, head to our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Brilliant. So this morning we are continuing with our James series and we will be talking about money. So uh, Narek has already mentioned football, so it will only be the second most controversial topic we covered this morning. Um, Now, just to say, uh, as we talk about this subject um, on money, I can often make us feel a little uncomfortable. um, And I think we can have one of two responses. The first one is like, yes, I've got a friend and he really should hear this sermon. Uh, I wish wish he'd been here. And the other one is just to kind of feel guilty um, and condemned. And that, that, neither of those responses is really what I am going for. Now, I have intentionally picked some illustrations that will be provocative. Um, I, because James, in his writing, he's a little bit pointed. And so I thought I'd pick some uh, pointed illustrations. Now, they may not illustrate wisdom, but they are meant to provoke. So... Um, just to say, just, just as a flag, just as a heads up. So, um, with that said, just before we jump into the passage, what we have, I'm going to try with some little interactions and we'll see how they go. Like, we can, like we're all going to channel our inner child this, today and uh, we'll see what happens. So, um, how much do you, money do you think you need to be rich? Don't shout it out, but... Put your hand up if you think someone who earns over 60,000 pounds a year is rich, personally, their individual income. Would that be considered rich? Excellent, okay. It's most of you. Um, Okay, Uh, put your hand up if you think that if you earn over 70,000 pounds, you're rich. Okay, keep it up. Okay, I'm gonna, I'll try going down, because that'll be, yeah, yeah. I've, I should have, <laughs> thanks Pippa, it's always helpful. <laughs> I didn't get everyone for 60, so I thought I'd go up. Right, uh, okay, how about 50? Keep your hand up if you think that someone's rich if they earn 50,000 pounds a year. Okay. Keep it up if you think it's 40,000 pounds a year that they're rich. Rich? Okay, keep, keep your hand up if you think that someone who earns 30,000 pounds a year is rich. Interesting. Okay. This, this is very interesting. All right, we'll leave it there. I'll read my passage and then we'll come to some survey anyway. I won't, I won't claim any answers. Um, okay, so it's uh, James 5 verses 1 to 6 and he writes this. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages that you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields and are crying out against you. The cries of the harvest have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty, and you have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So I did consider starting the passage by saying, put your hand up if you think you're rich. Um, But after hearing those words, I'm sure no one would do that. Um, And the reality is, in the current current economic crisis, I doubt many of us feel rich. 
But I thought I'd share some local and global statistics just to help us place ourselves. So a recent YouGov survey found that the UK population considers individuals who earn over £70,000 a year to be rich. So that's kind of the definition of what we were saying before. So people in general in this country think that people who earn over £70,000 a year are rich. Currently, the average household income in the UK is £35,000. 40% of the households in Birmingham live below the poverty line. That means that they earn, they have an income of £14,000 or less for their household. And globally speaking, I mean, I find that super shocking. So basically, if your household earns more than £35,000 a year, when you walk down the street in Birmingham, you are better off than about 50% of the people that you come into contact with. That is mad. Globally speaking, if your household income is £35,000 or more, which is the UK average, then you are in the top 25% of earners on the planet. And there are some other statistics about if you own a house or a car or a pair of shoes, then you actually are in the top 1% of wealth in the world. So, are we rich? Well, the challenge with applying these verses from James in a church like ours is that, wonderfully, by the grace of God, in contrast to many social gatherings that we experience, we have people here who are on both ends of that spectrum. We have people who the general population would consider wealthy, and we have people here who everyone would agree is fi are financially poor. But I think that regardless of where you place yourself under these points, I think James's pointed words have two truths that underpin them. The first one is that money is a terrible foundation for your life. That is, it's a rubbish foundation for your significance, your security, and your satisfaction. And the second is that God cares about injustice. So we're going to have a look at the three accusations that James levies against the rich um, and unpack those for us. So the first is hoarding, the second is extravagance, and the third is injustice. So the first one, hoarding versus generosity. James says this, you have hoarded wealth in the last days. <laughs> exactly. It's cute, it's cute, but nobody wants to be a hoarding hamster, right? <laughs> Hamsters, they shove their cheeks full of food to go bury it in the corner. Why? Because it's an evolutionary thing to keep them alive, because they don't want to have a shortage, but they are hoarding. And I'm sure if any of you has a hamster, like it doesn't take long for that food to rot and decay and stink. So we don't want to be a hamster. But when it comes to wealth and possessions, the question is, how much is enough? How much do you need to feel secure? How much do you need to satisfy you? Well, psychologists, marketing agencies, and the Bible all agree it's always just a little bit more than you already have. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. John D. Rockefeller, the US, <coughs> excuse me, the US billionaire, and at one point the richest man in the world, was asked by a reporter, how much money is enough? And he replied, just a little bit more. 
So where is your security? And what does that look like for your life? So Becky and I had a friend in London, and she grew up in a missionary family, and they relied on donations to support themselves and do their work. They were determined to rely on God for their provision and nothing else. They were determined to have no safety net financially at all. They had no savings and no pension. Their aim was to finish each month with a zero in their account because they wanted to have used every single thing that God had given them. Now, is that wise? Maybe not. But they certainly lived a countercultural life of faith. And their story is full of miraculous provision. And they can testify to the fact that they never went without what they needed. With all that's happened in the last five years, we know that wealth doesn't bring security. That's not really what wealth's for. It's a little aside, but I once uh, left my hammer in the garden um, for about a month. After that, it was covered in rust and corrosion. Now, the reason it took me so long to realize that I'd left my hammer in the garden was that I never use it. <laughs> and, but a tool that is used, and is used well and often, doesn't corrode. And James writes to the wealthy, your wealth is rotted and, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their wealth has, has decayed because they aren't using it. They have stored it up for themselves. But wealth is a tool. It's given to us by God to, to, be, to use to help build his kingdom and alleviate injustice. Now, the word that we describe for someone who lives a life like that is generous. And it's the practice of generosity, this spiritual discipline, that helps us to shift our hearts away from finding our security in wealth and towards living a life that looks more like building his kingdom. Now, I want to tell you another illustration. Now, I recognize that this isn't good practice, because actually most people, like Steve, who talked to us last week, um, who work with homeless people, say don't give, uh, giving cash to them isn't the best thing to do. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is this. So when Becky and I were married, um, when we were first married, we're still married, when we, were, when we first married, we lived in London. Becky worked as a church administrator and I worked voluntarily as a student worker. So to state the obvious, we didn't have much money. As a result, we lived in quite a poor neighborhood, which meant we were regularly approached by people asking for money. Now, I would pretty much always say, I'm really sorry, I don't have any cash. Over time, I started becoming more and more uncomfortable with this response for two reasons. The first was, at the time, we were running a cash budget, so I was always lying. Secondly, <laughs> secondly I realized I was giving that response out of fear because my heart was worried that if I gave to them, then I wouldn't have enough for me. And so as I thought about this and prayed about it, I decided that 
Whenever someone asked me for money, I would give them whatever change I had. Given that we were running a cash budget, I wasn't just going to empty my wallet. But I decided I would give whatever change I had to them because I wanted to A, not lie, and B, I wanted to break the stronghold of this thing that was going on in my heart. Now, at the beginning, it wasn't easy. But over time, it became much easier and also eventually became a joy. It was exciting to give away my money. But now some of you will be thinking, but that was a bad idea. And it was, maybe it was a bad idea. But maybe the challenge that you could say along with that is that if you're not giving money to the people in the street, what homeless charity are you supporting? So the second accusation is extravagance. We'll look at extravagance versus simplicity. Now, I don't know um, if it's true in this country if there's a saying, but in America, if there's a guy who like, dresses to show off how wealthy he is, you call him a peacock. Is that, is that a British thing or is that just old school? Okay, right, well, there we go. <laughs> extravagance. So the question when it comes, it's not an easy question to answer, is it? The question, am I living an extravagant lifestyle? How much is too much? Dorothy Day, the founder of the Catholic Workers Movement, um, summarizing a sermon by St. Basil, said this to someone who asked, the Christian who has two coats has stolen one from the poor. I mean, maybe in our setting, it's uh, better to say the Christian who has more than one coat for each season has stolen one for the poor, <laughs> but who knows? But in reality, I don't think it's really about these kind of prescriptive rules. The question is a question about our heart. When it comes to our purchases, what are our motivations? Where do we find our significance? Do we find our personal value and significance in how much we earn? Are we driving that car or wearing that watch or those shoes in order to show off to others how much wealth we have? Are we pursuing personal comfort with our purchases or Christ-like character? James warns us against the self-indulgent heart, the person who gives into every want and desire. And Paul encourages us, rather, in 1 Timothy 6, 6, to be the opposite. He says this, but godliness with contentment is of great gain. Historically, the practice of contentment is called simplicity, the spiritual practice of simplicity. Now, just before lockdown, minimalism had a great revival, and it was very popular. Once we were all locked in our homes and you'd thrown everything out, it didn't go so well. So then, then people, wanted, people wanted more stuff. But um, minimalism had a great revival pre-COVID. But simplicity isn't minimalism. Simplicity is, isn't about owning less, but rather developing a heart that wants less. It's not so much about what you own as it is about what you desire. I wonder what the world would look like if rather than looking to raise our standard of living, 
we look to raise our standard of loving. And that brings us to our third accusation, that of injustice. So in these verses, James speaks out like an Old Testament prophet in the pattern of Joel or Amos, condemning the rich for not caring for the poor, but for rather exploiting and devouring them, like a wolf who picks on the sick and weak and vulnerable. And this is an Arabian wolf. So when the Bible talks about wolves, this is what it's talking about, not the uh, gray and white ones. But I thought that I just like animals. I thought that was interesting. Anyway, it's aside. Um, most commentators agree that whilst they were clearly some wealthy people in the community that James was talking to, as he corrects their treatment of them, and then he also addressed the passage we looked at last week to the merchant class in the church, his condemnation of the rich extends beyond the church to condemn all of the rich people in Jewish society at the time. He sets his critique because I like big words, in eschatological framework. What does that mean? Well, that is that he is viewing the present reality through the coming final judgment of God. He's giving God's perspective on their wealth. So the church was mostly made, most likely made up predominantly of the laboring class. They were the ones who were suffering at the hands of the rich. And he is writing to them to give them God's perspective on what is happening. If we were to ask the question in this passage, where is God, then James' answer is that he is very much on the side of the poor, the needy, and the oppressed. Even if it doesn't appear that way now. So not to become too political, but is our current economic system fair and just, providing all with what they need? I think we could probably answer no. And whilst I doubt that any of us are involved directly and consciously in exploiting anyone, the nature of our global trade means that it is incredibly hard to not not participate in this web of exploitation that persists. And frustratingly, if you want to eat organic whilst living plastic-free and buying products that are guaranteed to be exploitation-free, then you either need to grow your own food and make your own clothes, or you need to be rich. And our world is incredibly interconnected, and the choices we make can have a deep impact on others thousands of miles away from us. So let's take the example of a cup of coffee bought from a coffee shop. Now, this example comes from the Financial Times in 2019, which is why this coffee costs £2.50 and not £5. But <laughs> there we go. Uh, And just to break the, uh, I would love some volunteers. How many do I need? I need someone to be a coffee bean grower, someone to be a coffee roaster, a barrister, a business person, owner of a business, landlord, tax person, and a farmer. I need eight people. I'm just going to start picking on people if people don't come out. Eight people, right. I'm going to write this out, and then we're going to see how you do. Okay. So... All right, you can, be, uh, you can be the grower, there we go, okay, there we go, I've lost my list, oh yeah, 
I'm not, I've lost my list. Uh, you see, I had planned to print these out, but it's been one of those mornings that I completely forgot a whole bunch of things. Um, that does not say what I wanted to say. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that will help. Uh, okay, right, business owner, and then landlord. There we go. Okay, here we go. We'll solve these things. Landlord. Oh, uh, barista. Oh, sorry, you wanted to be the tax person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, and the supplier. Yeah. All right, I need one more. Oh, no, I'm good. Supplier, please. Brilliant. Okay. Now, what I'd like you guys to get together and see if you can get yourselves in order of who you think gets the most, like, in order of how much money you get from the £2.50. So, we'll go highest this end and lowest this end. Yeah, do you get more than the barista or less than the barista? Yeah. All right, let's have a look. So, I can't remember what order my PowerPoint's in. Mike, this is going to be a lot of clicking for you. Okay, let's see how they've done. Is it, you guys sat happy with your order? Yeah, great, okay. So, who gets the most, I think is the first one. Click on Mike. The landlord. There we go. There we go. Gets 88 pence of the £2.50. All right. And the next is the barista. Look at that. You're well paid. Look at that. 63 pence. Uh, and then the tax man. There you go, Rick. 38 pence of that. The business owner. Good. You're in the right place. Okay. They get 25 pence. And then the supplier, oh, we're, getting, we're doing well here. Okay, who's next? The farmer. Look at that. <laughs> Finally, the roaster and the grower. One pence of the £2.50 goes to those who labour to grow the coffee. Thank you so much, guys, for illustrating. Brilliant.
So with that one pence in mind, these verses, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields, cry out against you. It's pretty stark. How much attention do we, t- do we make sure, how much attention do we take to make sure that the coffee growers we get are paid fair? Or where the cotton from our t-shirts come from? Or what are the working conditions of the people who grow our food, make our food, deliver our Amazon parcels? What's the impact on the environment that our choices have? And how is it affecting the most vulnerable? Like, I don't know if you're anything like me, I find this totally overwhelming. There's just so many things to take into consideration. Just, even just to figure out the impact of some of the choices that we make. I recognize that some of us, ourselves, even struggle to make ends meet. But I think the question is, do we even care? Because really, James is so outspoken against these rich people because they, not just because of their oppression, but because they seem that they don't even care. They don't care if they are not being fair or just. But James knows that God cares, that he hears the cries of those who are oppressed. And the promise is, in this passage and throughout Scripture, that God will one day act on their behalf to set all things right. So when the rubber hits the road, what does this all mean for us? Well, as a pastor, I work for a charity, and I would love the application of this to be that you should all go home, review your giving, and uh, make sure that you're giving 10%, gross, of course, because it's first fruits, uh, to the church. (laughs) But that's not exactly what the passage is saying. Paul says it nicely further on in the 1 Timothy passage we read earlier. Verses 17 Uh, to 19, he says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We see again in that passage the theme that money is a tool to be used to build the kingdom. Yes, that means giving to the church, but it also means using all the resources that God has given you to make a meaningful contribution to human flourishing, within the sphere of influence you have. To put that in a less academic way, to see faith, hope, and love increase in the lives of those around you. So what are our next steps? So if you're anything like me, when I think about topics like this, I become painfully aware of how far I fall short of where I would like to be. And I start making all kinds of radical commitments um, that if I'm honest, aren't practical or sustainable. So the better question for all of us is, what is our next step towards where we want to be? 
If we were to look, if I was to look at my budget and spending over the last five years, have I grown in generosity and justice? Do I have a budget? Am I being intentional about generosity? I think what we've seen in the overall uh, message of James is this, that if your heart is right, then your trajectory is right. And if your trajectory is wrong, then the chances are your heart is wrong. Now, as we know, our practices can help shape our hearts and free us, but ultimately, it is a partnership between our practical decisions and outworking and the power of the Holy Spirit. When it comes to how to change our heart, it's Jesus that we run to. And so my invitation for this morning for all of us is to spend some time with Jesus, asking, exploring what is in our heart when it comes to this question of finances, of wealth, of generosity, and see what we find there. But also to know that whatever we find there, there is mercy, there is grace, but there's also power to change. That Jesus' invitation is to all of us to step into greater freedom and to see us become more like him. So in a moment, we're going to come to take communion. But first, um, I just want to invite the band up and we're going to sing um, a song together. But just as the band are coming up, I just encourage you to just stay in that place of quiet reflection. We hope you enjoyed the talk and found it helpful. We'd love to welcome you to one of our gatherings. We meet in multiple locations at multiple times on Sundays, as well as in midweek small groups across the city. More information on all of these can be found at our website, birminghamvineyard.com. Thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.